So I decided I'm going to preach on eschatology today. Is that okay? I hope it's not, because I'm not. It's a total joke. I don't want Sean to come back and realize, like, we've lost a third of our members. Uh, so we're going to leave that where it belongs as a secondary issue. And today, instead, we're going to talk about a primary issue, which is the glory of God. Right? Even eschatology needs to be about the glory of God, ultimately. If your eschatology is about God being glorified, then it's fine. So last week, Sean talked about digging wells and digging deep and finding your source and finding that, that place. Uh, and I just, even before he started preaching that day and all this week, I've just been really thinking through the idea of Jesus' call and reading through Matthew uh, 11 and his, his call, which said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Right? And I will give you rest. Come to me. Learn from me. Because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Like that's a pretty intense statement. Like he says a lot there. And I want to go into some of that. Because the context of what he's saying. I think accentuates the mind-blowingness of the statement. Because it's in the context of John the Baptist. And even him doubting that Jesus was the Messiah. That's pretty mind-blowing. We're going to get to that, but just a little snapshot. Just think about this. The guy who was self-aware of the fact that a six to 800-year-old prophecy was about him preparing the way for the Messiah began to doubt whether he was the Messiah. So, Something intense must have been challenging him and his belief because he literally boldly proclaimed that he was the one prophesied to come and make way for the Messiah to come. So, and I was really torn between like how to title the message because there's a dual theme here, right? It's one to the glory of God is what I wanted to title it. And then I was like, oh man, but what about easy and light, right? Because the verse is easy and a joke is light, that type of theme. And both of those are hit. And hopefully, uh, God can tie them both together uh, in a way that's pretty cool. But I want to start with Hebrews 3, 18. I'm going to start reading from there, and I'm not going to stop until the thought stops. Okay? So in Hebrews 3, verse 18, it starts by saying this. And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest? Wasn't it those who didn't obey? So we see that they were unable to enter the rest of God because of their unbelief. He ties these two things together, unbelief and rest. I mean, unbelief and obedience, sorry. And he's saying those who didn't enter into God's rest, and he's referring to the Israelites coming out of Egypt, coming out of the wilderness into the promised land, the land of rest. And he's saying God... After bringing them through the wilderness, a 40-day trip that took them 40 years because of doubt and unbelief, did not allow some of them to enter into the promised land rest. And he says it was because of disobedience. And then he says that disobedience was the result of unbelief. And that's pretty practical. Like, no mind-blowing thing there. If you don't believe in God, you won't obey God. 
If you don't believe he's Lord of your life, you won't act as if he's Lord of your life. And so here, this is just the author of Hebrews making this point really clear, right? Saying, and to who did he swear that they would not enter his rest? It was those who disobeyed. So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, while the promise remains of entering his rest, this is a New Testament author, and he's telling us right now, the promise of entering into his rest still remains today. That promise is available to us. While the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear so that none of you should miss it. This is a promise that you could miss. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. He's referring to Israelites and then after Jesus comes. So that all of us together, remember the mystery of God revealed that Paul talks about in Ephesians, the church. This is what it's referring to, that God's plan throughout all the ages was to bring it all together in Christ and his church so that the manifold wisdom of God would be revealed to the powers in the heaven. It was God's glory on the line, and God revealed and brings full glory to himself by bringing those who had the promises of rest back then together with those of us who still have it today. So in other words, it's, this is referring to this promise of finding rest in God. And we're going to get into what that means. For we who have believed enter the rest. But they didn't enter the rest because of unbelief. And it's saying those of us who believe do enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. And this is the quote. So I sworn my anger to them. They will not enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day, the day God rested this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Since it remains for some to enter it, and we're in really, uh, we're hoping that's us, right? That we can be the some that enter it. Since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter it because of disobedience, again, he specifies a certain day. Today, speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I want to make sure you're tracking with this transition that just happened. He tied in the idea of rest to the fact that even God established this eternal concept of rest with himself. That he rested from his works. His works created creation. And then on the seventh day, he found rest from his works. And since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news. Wait, what? Those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience. The picture of what God means by rest is starting to clarify here as he goes on. This isn't just those wicked Israelites who, who just totally chose not to believe in God and perished in the wilderness, who rebelled against Moses and tried to overthrow God's leadership. 
This was the people who had received the good news. And even they did not enter the rest because of disobedience. Again, he specifies a certain day. Today, he says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, meaning if the rest that God has been talking about all this time was really meant for the Israelites into the promised land, he would not have spoken later about another day. A Sabbath rest remains, therefore, for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works. Just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. What an interesting tie-in. Some of you guys are like, I don't know how interesting that is, Steve. I'm not tracking. Let me summarize. I'm going to summarize because I know I just read half of, of Hebrews. Okay. God is establishing that from the beginning, his goal was to bring his people into a place of rest. But that rest is not what we think of as humans when we think of rest. We think of, I'm tired, let me lay down, right? Or man, a long day of work, let me sit down and watch a TV show or read a book or eat dinner or something or whatever. We just think of physical rest, right? Like letting our body that had a certain amount of energy that now has a much less amount of energy recuperate energy. The natural cycle of the human body, right? Rest is a good thing for your human body. That's not what he's talking about, obviously, right? Everybody in the wilderness slept every night. They rested every night. But that is not the rest God is talking about that he established from the beginning and that his goal was to bring them into. The rest was from their own works, meaning this, our own efforts and abilities to make ourselves one with God or right with God. So God established even in creation, right? We see the invisible things of God are clearly seen through his creation. It's one of the ways we know God and we can see who he is and what he's like. God in his creation created a period of rest where he created it and it was done. And now he was resting in everything that was being upheld by the word of his power. And that opportunity for rest was offered to the Israelites. And it was signified or represented as the promised land. If you will trust me and not rely on your own works, if you will rest from your own efforts and your own works and trust me, I will bring you into this place of rest, this promised destination where you will be with me together. We will dwell together. Can't say that any less. 100%. This is what God's bringing us into. And so then he says, hey, but the reason why people didn't enter this rest was not because, man, they were just too hard of workers. They didn't see the value in rest. No, no, no. He says the opposite of rest is disobedience. How does that make sense? Right? Because... To obey God would be to trust him to provide and to do what he says. 
to find this place of resting from your own lordship and your own leadership and your own need to make things happen and to make yourself right, which is what the Israelites did. And we've seen that over and over and over again. They were continuously trying to do things on their own. And God was establishing lessons. Hey, do what I say to do and watch the victory I bring to you. Go march around the walls of Jericho and watch what happens. They're like, okay, we obey. They do it. The very next time, God is like, by the way, don't take anything from there and keep it for yourself. That needs to be for the Lord. And they're like, yeah, but just a little bit. And so then they go into battle, I, without the Lord, in their own strength, and they get destroyed. Right? This is just one of a thousand lessons we see Israelites learning in a cycle. They were supposed to trust God from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. It was a 40-day trip. It took them 40 years because of disobedience. Even when God said, hey, I'm sending magic food to feed you every morning. You did not plant it. You did not grow it. You did not harvest it. You're just going to wake up and it'll be there. But since I'm going to do that, don't save any. Just trust that it'll be there again the next day. And the Israelites were like, no, if we're going to have enough to eat, we need to store and save it. There was a root, a deep root of disbelief, of unbelief that led to their disobedience consistently and continuously. These things demonstrate that. How much more unbelief do you need demonstrated than magic food on the ground? It'll be there again tomorrow. Trust me. No. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I am storing some up right now. It's humorous in some ways, right? Because we're like, we can see ourselves in it. But this is what he's after. But this is why at the very end, even of this, Hebrews, one of the latest books in the Bible written, meaning Jesus had come and resurrected, ascended, and the church has been established. And this is second generation Christian church after Jesus. And he's still teaching them. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest. How do we make effort to rest? Has anyone here ever tried really hard to fall asleep? It's like counterproductive, right? Like you're trying really hard to rest. And that's what it sounds like they're asking for when we understand rest the way we're understanding it. But he says this, let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. So the effort here that brings us into his rest is obedience. And obedience is the result of belief. We have this root of unbelief issue that we need to deal with in order to really get to this place where we can rest in God. And that unbelief is rooted so much in our mixed, broken human experiences where, oh, I tried to believe God for that thing and it didn't come through. So therefore, that's not how that works. Or, man, I really, I was trusting God to do good things and then someone I love died. How could God have done that? Or, you know, God was prospering and blessing everyone around us, and then I lost my job, and that led to losing my house and my car, and we had to start all over so much for trusting God. And we recognize that our trust in God is rooted in 
his ability to be a genie to us. His ability to grant us all the good wishes we want. When in scripture, those people who are listed as men of faith, some of them were sawn in two. Some of them died in caves, destitute, on the run for their lives. These are the people the scripture says were men of great faith. Some of these people were thrown in prison and never allowed to see their family ever again. These are the people, Scripture says, the world is not worthy of. Because their faith in God was not tied to the good things God would do for them. It was tied to their recognition that he is Lord and there is no other. And that whether he gives or he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that type of faith, that type of belief is what leads to obedience. It's why people entered into that rest. It's why people, Christians, were able to be burned at the stake for their faith while singing worship songs. Listen, instead of screaming in agony like some of the other people, there are historical records of Christians who were burned at the stake for their faith who died singing worship songs while they burned. That's what rest looks like in a natural demonstration, right? All hell is breaking loose. You are in the pit of it, and you're able to worship. You're able to worship the Lord. You're able to find it all joy when these things come upon you. Why? Not because you're so good at obedience, it's because you genuinely believe he is who he says he is. And that the eternal weight of glory that is demonstrated in him and in your life and relationship with him far outweighs anything else. We sing psalms about how David said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than spend a thousand days anywhere else. And we're like, that's cute. It feels good to sing. But David meant it. These songs came from the depth of his interactions and belief with his father. He understood the value exchange between God and what he had and anything he could have received on earth. This is why even at the end of his life, he willingly gave up his kingdom at the at the idea that maybe God was done with him. I want you to get that. It's a demonstration of a man who started as a boy and put his heart and faith in the Lord and demonstrated throughout his life and fell and fell into sin and gross sin and sin that most of us would condemn him to hell forever for and never talk to him again. And yet at the end of his life, once again, he demonstrates the depth of his belief in God by being willing to give up his kingdom. This is a man who had the fighting ability, army, men, and experience to destroy the rebellion that was coming against him. And not only destroy it, but destroy it easily. And instead, because he wasn't sure 
if God was done with him or not. It wasn't worth it to him to risk fighting against God. So he just said, I'm going to put it in God's hands. I'm not fighting against this. I've been a mess. Maybe God's done with me. And he retreats and he leaves it to God. And then God takes care. God vindicates him and puts him back on the throne to again be faithful to the covenant promises he made to David, which is that you will always have a son on the throne. And we know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that coming from Judah. But anyway, here's my point. Disobedience was the pattern that kept us out of rest. Now let's look at Matthew eleven twenty seven and watch what Jesus says now in this call. Watch what you see. Remember everything I just said about Hebrews and their teaching about rest and the biblical idea of rest? And then in Matthew eleven twenty seven. says this, all things have been entrusted to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son desires to reveal him to. I want you to hear this. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about knowing the Father. We're talking about knowing the God who rested on the seventh day and invited everyone to come into that rest through obedience. And Jesus makes this point that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son desires to reveal him to. So it's the Son, Jesus, who reveals the Father to us as he so desires, which Here's the very next line, guys. Right after he says, it's the son, whoever the son desires to reveal the father to. Here's this big call to the masses. Come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened. Guys, that's the opposite of rest. Do you hear that language? He's saying the opposite of those who are rested in a place of rest. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened. In other words, the people he wants to make the Father known to, the people he wants to reveal the Father to and open up the door to invite them to come and be one with him and the Father are those who are weary and heavy laden and burdened. And he continues to say, come to me, all of you, who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Ooh, there's that word. I will give you rest. All of you, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because I'm gentle and humble at heart. And you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And there is so much here. Think about what kept the people out of the land of rest and out of God's rest. Disobedience is the result of unbelief. And he is speaking now in this context of unbelief. Unbelief, Steve, what? He's talking about those who come to it. No, listen to this context. This whole chapter is a response 
to John the Baptist. This whole narrative, okay, from the very beginning, it starts this. He's going on and John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus because they heard that he was eating with sinners, drinking with sinners, spending time with sinners. And John the Baptist's paradigm of holiness looked very different. He was an ascetic man. He was one that denied himself, that lived out in the wilderness, lived on locusts and honey and wore camel's clothes, which was itchy and, and not nice, and then lived in the wilderness, isolated, alone, like a monastic type of lifestyle. And he expected the Messiah to come living also this holy lifestyle. And John the Baptist, when he was first brought on the scene, leaps while he's in his mother's womb at the presence of Jesus in Mary's womb. And it says he was filled with the Spirit from that point forward, so much so that his mother began to prophesy about who Jesus was. John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit, the greatest among men up until that time, according to Jesus himself, coming out, living this life of holiness in one particular way, comes on the scene. They say, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not worthy to loose the straps on the Messiah's sandal. But when he comes, he's going to bring salvation and, and forgiveness of sins. And then when Jesus walks, he makes this statement. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He literally made a messianic proclamation, a no confusion statement, there's your Messiah. He recognizes and calls himself the one that Isaiah prophesied about six to eight hundred years earlier as the one who went before him to prepare a way for the Messiah. Think about that level of belief and confidence to be able to claim an 800-year-old prophecy for yourself. I am the man Isaiah was talking about. And right there, that's the man I've been preparing a way for. And Jesus comes in a totally different form, not in the box at all John the Baptist was thinking or expecting. John the Baptist ends up in prison while Jesus is there, preaching hard against the sin in the land, and Jesus is not preaching against Herod, and Jesus is hanging out with sinners and eating and drinking, and John the Baptist is just thrown for a loop because Jesus is not acting the way he expected Jesus to act. To the point where he sends his disciples to say, are you the Messiah? Or, or should we be looking for someone else? Think about that. I don't want you to miss it. I want you to be able to grasp the humanity of John the Baptist so that you can relate to this reality that a man who is so confident that he boldly proclaimed he was the fulfillment of prophecy and that Jesus was the Messiah, because Jesus did not act the way he expected him to, began to doubt. And what kept them out of God's rest? Unbelief, which led to disobedience. And John is here wrestling suddenly with belief because now the Messiah is there. The kingdom's not rushing in like he thought. Instead, John's in prison. 
total opposite result that he thought would happen. His disciples are all confused because they're bringing reports back to him that Jesus is uh, not like you. And so here in this context, we see Jesus speaking to them. And Jesus says, go and tell John these things. The blind see, the lame walk, people with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told the good news. And if anyone is not offended because of me, he's blessed. Listen to that subtle rebuke to a man that Jesus is about to praise more than he's ever praised any man. He says, John, hold tight. I'm doing the signs that you know are to come. Don't be offended by me. If you can just hold on, hold on to your belief. Don't be offended that I'm not doing what you think I should do and I'm not acting the way you think I should act and I haven't done the things for you that you think I should have done and that you're in a really bad spot, probably as a result of me. You will be blessed if you don't take offense to that and you hold fast to your belief. And then he goes on a rampage of of praise for this man, John, who is in the midst of doubting. He rebukes the crowd saying, who did you think you were going to see? Right? Were you going out to just see a reed blowing in the wind? You guys knew who you were going out to see. A man great, the greatest of the prophets. He even says this, for those of you who can understand this, he is the Elijah to come that was prophesied. Like Jesus is saying, this guy was awesome. This man is a man you should listen to. And this man is in the place of doubt. He's wrestling with whether he believes Jesus is the Messiah. And in that, Jesus then rebukes the people saying, guys, unbelief is at the root of this. If, if Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the signs and miracles that you guys have seen, they'd still be here today because they would have repented and believed. But you guys have seen this and you still don't believe. Do you see how the whole thing, the whole message, this whole chapter is still attacking unbelief? And unbelief keeps you out of what? Rest. This rest, the supernatural rest, not your body sleeping, right? This salvation rest, this coming into oneness with the Father, relationship, salvation, the whole thing. It's this unbelief, and Jesus is attacking the unbelief, all while blessing John and promising John and saying, like, listen, but for those of you in the kingdom, John is the least. He's the greatest up until now, but for those of you who will believe, John is the least of these. And he goes on to attack these, the, the, the people for unbelief. And then he turns and he, he starts praising God. And that's where he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. And then, as if to say, this is who I desire to reveal the Father to, he goes on to talk about the very thing that is the result of belief. And he says... Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, here's the next part, because rest, what is, how do you get into this rest? All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me, 
That's right in the middle. Here's the prerequisite. You want to know how to enter his rest? He's telling us right now, take up my yoke. And for those of us who don't know, a yoke was the thing you put on oxen's neck, right? You tie two, two oxen together, yoke, and it keeps them straight. Well, in rabbinic language, yoke was a set of teachings. It meant it was imagery to show that you were yoked with your teacher, with your rabbi, according to his teachings. And so that was the rabbinic language. Can you carry your rabbi's yoke? That was there. Who are you yoked with? So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here's the prerequisite, guys. Jesus' expectation on how to reveal the Father and bring us into this rest with him where we rest from our own works and begin to operate in Christ, the prerequisite was that we would learn from him by taking his teachings upon us. Because I'm gentle and I'm humble of heart. I'm not going to lord it over you. You can trust me. I'm going to bring you into this rest. It says, if you do this, if you take my yoke upon you and learn from me, you will find rest for yourselves. Why? Because my yoke, it's easy. And my burden, it's light. So therefore, all of you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened, come to me and exchange that for an easy set of teachings and a light burden. Because you're now in my rest and you're operating diligently, and you're striving to enter this rest. That was the Hebrew message. Strive to enter the rest. This rest does not mean retirement. It's the opposite. It means you are giving everything you have empowered by the grace of God. So where does this lead us to? James 3. That clock just scared me. We haven't corrected it since daylight saving. I was like, I'm going to get fired. I was really like, man, I'm going to roll if it's almost one o'clock. All right, in James 3, this is... uh, all this started because I was like, man, why, why, why does it feel like, God, you're delaying? You're not doing the work. Like, where is the... I know that we're preparing for what God's bringing us, and we're seeing it consistently. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but like consistently, on a weekly basis, God is bringing new people into the kingdom through the Crossing Life Church family. I'm sure he's doing it all over the place, but I'm saying what I see is it happening in our midst. God is moving and doing this. And this is just the beginning of what God is doing. And we have to be prepared and we need leaders and we need people who can not only look out for themselves, but also look out for the interests of others. We need people who can not only bear their own burdens, but also bear the burdens of others. That's what kingdom leadership looks like. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. We need people prepared and ready. You've got to find people who are faithful now in the little things because those are the people God will immediately grace and promote into being faithful in the bigger things. We can't have a body of people who are just waiting until it's good, until I'm ready, until everything's lined up, until the ducks are upon. No, you are meant to be a ship built at sea. 
Your healing, your growth is meant to happen while you're looking out for other people. You understand? That's the kingdom. To the person who has been saved for three minutes, there's a great commission given to him. You understand? It's not, hey, in about 10 years, when you've gone through nursing and, and elementary school and you've been trained in the greater things, then maybe we'll put you out on a test run to see if you can start doing some great commission stuff. It's literally like, this is, this is the great command from Jesus. Hey, as you've been loved, go love others. You know what that takes? The only qualification for that is recognizing that you've been loved and how you've been loved. That's it. That's also a prerequisite for salvation. What a coincidence. Get saved, get on mission. And watch the healing happen through that in that process as God does all the multifaceted things he does. Here's the obstacle that I see James 3 brings out in James 3.13. Now, remember, guys, what's the issue here? It's disobedience as a result of unbelief. What was the prescription for Jesus when he said, if you want rest, come to me? You're tired of striving. You're tired of of failing. You're tired of finding yourself spinning your wheels, not being satisfied, not being on mission. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Okay, I'm here. Now, how do I rest? Easy. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. Meaning, obey my teaching. Here's my teachings. Learn from me. Walk in them. Obey them. James 3.13, here's a principle that he, he lays out. Who is wise and understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. But if you have bitter envy, selfish ambition in your heart, don't brag and lie in defiance of the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and selfishness, ambition, selfish ambition exists, there is in every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits without favoritism and hypocrisy. And fruit, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what is the source of the wars and the fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? I want you to think about this. I'm reading this part because this is my strong suspicion. We do not. We are not walking in the fullness of the rest of God the way we should be and the way we could be because we have not surrendered our lives to the glory of God yet. We haven't. There's still so much kind of ambition or selfish desires or goals or interests and even things we don't recognize as wrong. It's just been in us for generations, taught to us as good and right, right? Like pride. I was raised to believe that pride was really good, right? And some pride that you can say, oh, I'm really proud of my son. That's fine. But because it's such a mixed bag, it was like pride is good. Yeah, I take pride in what I do. Absolutely. Don't speak against my stuff. I take pride in that. Things like that that we don't even, might not even recognize is wrong and selfish and, and inward focused. We haven't surrendered all to the purposes of God's glory. Like I wrote a note here that said, what if we lived for his glory and came to him for rest? Right? Like if we lived for his glory 
and knew that we came to him to find that rest. I was like, well, what keeps us from that? What keeps us from walking in this rest where we're not bogged down by circumstances, where you don't get taken out of, out of the mission and the work by, by inner turmoil, struggles, healing, whatever? What if all of that happened, was happening, right? It's the reality. We're broken humans. We have bodies that decay. We have souls that need, need rest and, and healing. But what if all of that was taking place in a place of rest? What if for all that to take place, you didn't need to be sidelined and taken out of the mission and go for three years into programs and support and find healing or whatever? What if the Holy Spirit was able to do that while you were walking in obedience to the scriptures and what they asked us to do? I was like, what would that take? Well, it would take a peace. It would take, it would take a trust that God is at work in doing this while I give my life away to the kingdom and his righteousness. And that is, that is the great promise and call of scripture to us. That God will do that. That we don't need to wait. We don't need to uh, make a list of things that have to happen before we begin to obey, obey Scripture. We can live a supernatural reality right now. What it requires is recognizing that my life is not my own and that it is unto the glory of God. And that the place of rest I find comes from learning his teachings and obeying him in trust. And that leads us to this because James is saying, what is the source of the wars and the fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? Think about what James is highlighting. The cravings, the desires that are at war within you. You desire and you don't have it. You even murder and covet, but still can't obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. But then even when you ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly so that you can spend it on your own desires for your own pleasures. Adulteresses, he uses strong language here, but he's covering the whole gambit. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason, the scripture says, that the spirit he has caused to live in us yearns jealously for us. But he gives greater grace in these places. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts. Double-minded people. Those who have a mind for the glory of God, but also a mind for your own desires. Which creates the wars within you. <clears throat> Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Isn't that message? This is James. 
He's rebuking the church. He's not speaking to unsaved people. He's saying, this is happening in the church, guys. And it's true because we have this war. And I was like, what is this war? This war is our desires versus God's glory. Because what brings God's, God glory oftentimes is not what we would naturally desire. And this is the war that's within us that we wrestle with. <clears throat> And the last time I was up here, I quoted John Piper, right, where he said that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And that, again, is a nutshell statement of this, the truth of this Christian life and what we're talking about. If we could get to a place where we truly could find our full satisfaction in God, we would find rest. From that place of rest, we would operate in his strength as if the, the life of God were living through us, and we would find full satisfaction, which would demonstrate to the world the greatness of God, and he would be most glorified. And this starts by us coming here and recognizing that we must first take upon us his yoke and learn from him and get rid of any bitterness, any envy, selfish desire. Just do self-assessment. When you pray, are your prayers all about what you need? When you do pray, if those of you who have a consistent prayer life, when you do pray, do your prayers sound a lot like, God, I need this. Please take care of this. I'm trusting you for this. Thank you so much for doing this. Please help this situation here. Please do that. <clears throat> I'm not saying that's wrong. That's one type of prayer. But if that is the, the general sense of your prayer life, it's probably speaking to this place of rest that's missing. This idea of the trust and the promises of God for provision. Jesus once told his disciples how to pray. And it started by saying this. Father. In heaven, let your name be holy. That was the start. It's this idea of bringing glory to the Father to start. Then he's like, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us of what we need and help us to forgive others. Why? Because yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Understand the bookends of how to pray was to start and to end. I'm not telling you this is how all your prayers have to sound. I'm saying Jesus was laying out a template for what prayer would look like. And if you want to know how to pray, ask the guy you're praying to. And that's what the disciples did, and he did. And he's saying, God, your name is holy. Here's the stuff that I see, and I'm trusting you with it. Because yours is the glory and the power forever and ever. Like that's, that's, that's this faith. That's this place of belief that brings you into a place where you can rest in both abundance and in lack. Where you can sit in prison or you can sit on a throne. And either way, you're at rest because you trust that life and everything is being lived for the glory of God and not your own desires. This is what gives people the strength and the vision and the grace to lay their lives down daily in ways that matter, where you inconvenience yourself 
for the sake of others, where you lay your life down for the sake of others, where you make hard decisions that are going to cost you dearly for the sake of others, where you're willing to embrace scary, terrifying things for the glory of God. What does that look like practically? Here's the rubber meat in the road, guys. We all have things that we value in our lives. And some of us value them to the place of them being sacred cows. Untouchable. My home is my sanctuary. That cannot be violated. I'm more than happy to go out and help and serve people, but not my home. That's my place of rest. I'm willing to give and serve with my time, but I just don't have anything else to to give or or serve with. I'd help this person, but man, I don't like them. They annoy me. They're frustrating. I just can't be around them. I'd serve here in this place, but I don't like doing that type of stuff. I'd move and change things, but I really love where we live in my home, and I don't want to give that up. Sure, I'd go and do that task, or I'd take on that position or do that, but family first. Can't do that. Got to keep the family first. These are all just some examples of potential issues that many people have struggled with before where we where we we put things ahead of the glory of God and the purpose of our existence and we're not willing to endure suffering as a good soldier we're not willing to embrace hardship as a a lover of God we're not willing to to pay high prices to see God glorified we've missed opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for God to receive glory because we're tired or selfish or even being lazy or scared, fearful, not sure, can't take the risk, not willing to do it. These are all areas that need to be challenged, ripped open and said, God, I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. So I will serve you in life or by death, whichever way brings you glory, God. Until we get to that place, we're going to struggle in this this mediocre, like, mill. It's like the wilderness almost. It's like like we can be here to here in 40 days, wandering, wrestling, two steps forward, one step back, because we're just, we're not sure the man will be there tomorrow again. We're not sure the pillar of fire will continue to lead us. We're not sure we're, we're, we're milling around. We're like, can I do that? I'm not ready yet. I'm too broken. I'm too messed up. I'm not healed enough. There's too much struggle in my life. I can't take it. I'm overwhelmed. There's a solution for all those things in the rest of God. There's a place of supernatural grace. Supernatural. Beyond your natural ability. Supernatural. Regardless of your your predilections, your personality types, your likes, your dislikes, there's a place to 
to reach the supernatural and live a supernatural life and touch it and bring heaven down to earth in those situations when you want to back away and quit, but instead you push forward and then you see the glory of God. So my prayer is that we get to that place continuously. As you've known, it's the message, it's the preaching, it's the gospel, it's the, the heart of it, that there would be a people solely and wholly surrendered to the will and the work of God. Coming from that place of being fully satisfied in him. <clears throat> Let's just take a minute, meditate on that. Begin to pray into this right now before we leave. Begin to pray. Just have the prayer, people in the prayer team, the elders, deacons, life group leaders, come up now just so we can be ready for this. Pray, if you want prayer for this, guys, take advantage of this opportunity to come and be prayed for. I think a lot of us don't come and take prayer, take the opportunity to be prayed for. Again, there's like this insidious unbelief. I've been prayed for a thousand times, nothing changes. Well, maybe what needs to change is your perspective, your heart attitude, what you're expecting from God in prayer. Are you praying for God to have his will in his way? Or are you praying for God to look like you expect him to look? Are you like John who has walked with God and you know him? You were so confident in it, but things in life have shaken you and caused you to begin to doubt whether this is right, whether God is coming through, whether God does answer prayer. Well, here's the truth. He does. Look around. Look what he's doing. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. The lame are walking. The poor are having the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended by the fact that God does not act or look the way you expect him to. And this is the place to come and pray. You come and you say, God, let every man be a liar, but you be true. I want to start by recognizing that you are the Holy One and let your name be hallowed and worshipped and honored and reverenced as holy. And from that place, let me now pray. And let me sum it up by acknowledging and recognizing that it's to you that is the kingdom. It's to you that is the glory. It's to you that is the power. That you have your way. Let's just begin to pray into that. Even if you've never prayed that way, do it now. Let this be a first experience. And if not, let it be an experience that may have been lost if you haven't prayed that way. And if it's how you pray, do it again and begin to be, carry other people's burdens right now in prayer, asking for God to be made holy in your eyes, in your heart, in your life, that God would be glorified and that he would begin to show you who he is and what he's doing in a fresh new way, that he'd eradicate any golden calves, he'd eradicate any type of things that you've held too dear, and make room for the king of glory to come in and to be seen. By that I meant, let's start praying. <laughs> Here, I'll start. And you guys can just join in and we'll have like a chorus of prayer. God, you are good. You are faithful. You are good. You are holy. You are the only one to be hallowed, God, to be worshipped, to be reverenced to be feared, to be held in awe, to be worshiped, to be obeyed, to be followed. It's you and you alone. You stand alone and there is no competition for you in this, God. We thank you that you've been faithful, that even when we've been faithless, you have eternally remained faithful. 
Thank you, God, that this is who you are and this is who you will always be and that we can trust you in that. We can trust your faithfulness. We can trust that it's, it's your heart that we be satisfied in you, that it's your heart that you be glorified, that it's for all of humanity's best interest that you be most glorified, God. God, take my life and glorify yourself with it. By life, by death, by inconvenience, by loss, by gain, by abundance, by lack, however you see fit, God, glorify yourself. God, search my heart. Forgive me for all things, sin, seen and unseen. Make me right before you, God. Renew in me a clean heart. And give me the grace, God, to forgive those who have sinned against me, who have wronged me, who have offended me, who have violated me, who have abused me, who have treated me poorly who have been careless and callous to me, who have rejected me outright, give me your heart and your grace to forgive them fully and truly that you would be glorified in such a thing. We thank you, God, that you are, you are good, that you are leading us in the right paths. We praise you for continuing to lead us beside the still waters, God. Restoring our souls in the place of rest as we follow you. And let it be at the forefront of our hearts, of our minds, of our eyes, ever before us, that it's to you that belongs all the glory, not us. That it's to you that belongs all the power, not us. And that it's your kingdom that you're Lord of, not us and that we can rest in such a glorious thing that it's not on us that you are Lord and it's your Lordship that you are King and it's your kingdom that it's your mission it's your work we thank you, God, that you've invited us along to be a part and you've called us and commissioned us to do what you've asked us to do and that you've provided everything we need to do it. 